0: the Greeks of all people? Why did mathematics start there, on a few scrawny little islands in the Mediterranean? The very idea that mathematics is about systematically proving things is an exclusively Greek invention. Axiomatic-deductive mathematics has been discovered only once in human history. No other culture independently developed anything like it. And another uniquely Greek invention is the lettered Diagram, so the triangle ABC, the line AB, uh, stuff like that, you know, that you use a geometrical diagram uh, where points are denoted by letters and uh, write mathematical text uh, based on that. This, again, is is something that only the Greeks have felt the need to to do geometry that way. And where if you find that mode of doing mathematics somewhere else, that is because it's copied from the Greeks. Of course, uh, well, you know, who cares about the letter diagram? I mean, that's not the point. The point is that uh, it's a symbol, it is emblematic of how many aspects of mathematics that we now consider essential, indispensable, were in fact discovered once and only once in human history at a particular uh, time and place. So what was it about that time and that place, that Greek uh, window, of innovation that made it explode with uh, intellectual progress. In fact, you can make a pretty good case for geographical determinism. The seeds of excellence was not in the blood or the genes of these people, but it was in the land and the sea. Islands. This is the key. Greece is a country of a thousand islands. In fact, you can hear this even in the very names of uh, the great mathematicians of that time. Consider Pythagoras, for example. Uh, More fully, you often see his name stated as Pythagoras of Samos, you know, his place of birth, uh, which is an island, the island of Samos, and uh, one of those typical picturesque Greek islands with the white little houses, the, the beaches, and the olive trees, and so on. So, And the same goes for other great Greek mathematicians. Hippocrates of Chios, Aristarchus of Samos, Archimedes of Syracuse... Uh, he, parkers of Rhodes, island, 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 island. Everybody is an islander in Greek mathematics. Uh, there's also uh, Doxus, he was on Knidos, Diocles of uh, uh, Those are technically peninsulas, but you know, it's pretty nearly islands, so you know, just, uh, it just keeps going with all this island stuff. What's with all the islands? So let's see how much we can use the islandness of. Greek geometry, to explain uh, why it happened there and not elsewhere. So, in fact, uh, you can get pretty far with that line of reasoning. First of all, islands are excellent for trade. So, back then, it was certainly a thousand times easier to transport goods by water than by land. Even the Romans, centuries later, used to import uh, huge amounts of grain from uh, Egypt, for example. It was a staple of their Food supply, and that's the Romans. They're famous for their excellent roads. Even the, to them, though, still with all their for all their fancy roads, it was much more of a hassle to try to get grain from mainland Europe down to Italy than to merely swish it across the sea with uh, some efficient ships. So the Greeks became tradespeople for this reason, because of the water is such a uh, a benefit to trade. What did they have to trade, the Greeks? So imagine, picture in your mind the typical landscape of the Greek islands. If you have seen those, it's hilly, full of slopes. It has kind of a dry, rocky soil. It's not a typical agricultural landscape that you would have on this irrigated flatlands in mainland Europe or in the Americas, and that kind of stuff. It would slide right off these Greek uh, hills. In Greece, you need tougher plants, plants with roots that really dig in and Hang on for their lives, you know, as rain showers would uh, just wash off the whole thing if you had looser soil. So, therefore, you have olives and grapes in Greece. Those are plants who love a good slope, you know, they thrive on that, in that kind of environment. And how fortunate for the Greeks, because those plants are perfect for trade. Think about it. You use These plants, the olives and the the grapes, you use them to make olive oils and wine. Those are expensive, non-perishable luxury products. Vegetable and fruit, that's highly perishable. Not great for trade. By the time you get to your destination to sell it, half of it has gone rotten. It's been eaten by worms. It's also very bulky. You know, a big barrel of cabbage or something. That's not going to fetch you a whole lot of uh, cash Because it doesn't have a whole lot of calories, you know. So a lot of work to transport the thing for very little payoff in the end. Cabbage business, that's not very lucrative. Or uh, apples or something like that. You know, that's not really going to make you rich. Olive oil and wine, though. Now, that's different. Olive oil is a calorie bomb, of course. A little goes a long way. It's easy to transport a fortune's worth of olive oil. You know, it's much more concentrated than... Some fruit or vegetable. Uh, these things don't mind being stored either. Olive oil, uh, wine. You, you know, go to the supermarket. They're just standing around. They're not even refrigerated or anything. That's great. S- still today, and all, so also back then, you just stick this thing in an urn, uh, put a cork in it, and uh, they're near set. You know, you can transport this thing around all you want. Wine, you know, it uh, even gets better by sitting around, as everybody knows. Unlike if you have a sack of cucumbers or something, you know that will spoil before you put your sandals on, let alone before you had traveled to uh, to another country to to sell them at a different market. So also olive oil and wine are highly processed foods. A lot of work uh, goes into the production of those products, right. What are you going to do with a bag of cucumbers anyway? They are what they are. You just eat cucumbers, you slice them up, put them in a salad, and eat the thing. There's no processing involved. There's no sophistication in the production. Grapes and olives are very different. They're processed by expert artisans who, are, who have learned a craft with considerable uh, expertise goes into that. So there has a lot of added value. You know, the labor theory of value, the Marx uh, talks about it and whatever. You know, it's a thing in classical economics. So the more labor you put into the product, the more expensive it's going to get. And this is why these things became uh, luxury products, things that you can sell for a lot of money. So the Greeks were in a great position. They had plenty of easy access to the sea. They became natural uh, sailors, seafarers, and they also had these uh, very expensive products that were quite easily transportable and could be sold for a good profit. So the Greek islands are a recipe for wealth in that respect. It's perfect products for trade, perfect access to the sea for trading, and it creates wealth. Wealth in turn creates a larger middle class that has lots of leisure time. People are sitting around. What are you going to do with all this this money that I have? Maybe put it to, to thinking, to the arts and culture and so on. And So that is a, a precondition for, for an intellectual climate. Where, where intellectual things can thrive. In fact, one might also argue that trade itself is a recipe for a certain open-mindedness, a kind of diversity of thought. You know, there was no Internet uh, back then. Traveling is a good way to get exposed to other ideas, other ways of doing things. If you are uh, in the trade business, you're going to be exposed to different societies. Maybe that means that you will then start thinking more critically about uh, your own uh, idiosyncrasies and the habits of your own culture, your own worldview, start to question things perhaps. Uh, also, a merchant needs to trade with whoever is paying, basically. In the interest of profit, you need to get along with. Uh, perhaps people with different religions and so on, people from different cultural backgrounds. So you need to get used to dealing with that, with people different than yourself. You need to develop kind of tolerance for differences of opinion, strategies for reasoning with people you disagree with, you know, be able to get along uh, relatively productively despite not being, uh, you know, homogenous culturally with with these people you're trading with. So all that follows from trade. In fact, there is a second big consequence of the islands beside the trade aspect, which is that it leads naturally to the independent city-states, for which Greece is, of course, very famous. These islands are naturally isolated units. It would be much harder for a single despot to impose a unified rule on a bunch of scattered islands than on a solid landmass like Egypt or, or Italy. This, so it's the geography of democracy, you might say. This kind of islandness, you know, decentralization is in the very uh, constitution of the land itself. Democracy means debate. You don't have this uh, the spirit of a, of a different society where the pharaohs of Egypt or something. would be more like, well, you do this because I'm the pharaoh. I'll chop your head off if you don't obey. So you have that kind of authoritarianism, kind of top-down stuff going on, obviously. But in a democracy, then, you have uh, one guy presenting reasons for this thing and the other guy presenting reasons for some other thing, and people are weighing the arguments. They are making up their own minds. So that's going to be the setting that gives birth to mathematics and philosophy, ultimately. Geography created this kind of uh, rich democratic, uh, cosmopolitan type of people who fell in love with the clashes of ideas and they took that concept uh, to the extreme and that is the source of their the explosion of progress in the sciences and philosophy. So uh, Jeffrey Lloyd, the famous Cambridge professor, he has written uh, some good stuff about this. So let me quote, uh, I'm going to use his work uh, a, a lot here to uh, to go into more details about this. So, it's true enough that the level of technology and economic development in ancient Greece was high. It was, in fact, uh, far in advance of many modern non-industrialized societies today. Uh, Also, Aristotle, indeed, explicitly associated the development of speculative thought, the philosophy of the Greeks, with the leisure produced by wealth. And not for nothing. Of course, that has a lot to do with it. However... Egypt and Babylonia were economically incomparable more powerful than any of the Greek city-states. So th- the explanation for that additional distinctively Greek uh, factor must uh, be uh, sought elsewhere than Greek alone, that, that Greek aspect, the kind of uh, Lloyd calls a generalized skepticism, you know, it's critical inquiry directed at fundamental issues. This is somehow distinctive to, to Greek culture, this this attitude of uh, fundamental uh, questioning of everything in a philosophical mindset. So uh, why only there? So indeed, Lloyd also traces this to the democratic context, the answer for why this distinctive uh, ingredient arose in Greece specifically, maybe the particular social and political situation in ancient Greece, especially the experience of radical political debate and confrontation in small-scale, face-to-face societies, the institutions of the city-state put a premium on skill in speaking and produced a public who appreciated the exercise of that skill. Claims to particular wisdom and knowledge in other fields besides the political were similarly liable to scrutiny, and in the competition between many and varied claimants to such knowledge, those who deployed evidence and arguments were at an advantage compared to those who did not. So the Greeks were so fond of debates, of clashes of ideas, that they developed a refined uh, social machinery to sustain such debates. They ritualized and institutionalized the, the concept of philosophical debate. Public debates between contending speakers in front of a lay audience was a prominent part of ancient Greek culture. This was their form of entertainment, the way you go to the theater, to the uh, musical concert, and the, and the philosophical debates. That was one of those go to activities in, in Greek culture. Science and philosophy were born on a stage like that, a stage of contending speakers. Many otherwise very uh, peculiar characteristics of Greek thought are explained by this format. For example, The stage debate, it requires speakers to proclaim bold and provocative theses and to strive to avoid reconciliation with other viewpoints at all costs. And this is why early Greek thought is rife with crackpot claims. For example, that motion is impossible or that a man is all air or all fire all water all earth. Indeed, the, the very format of debate demands a multiplicity of such viewpoints in competition with one another. And this is why that you have this remarkable uh, proliferation of theories dealing with the same central issues. One guy says it's fire, the other guy says it's water. They're debating, uh, targeting the same issue. So if they needed to, the debate format required them to go on the stage and debate one another back and forth. That's what the audience wants, clashes of opposites. So they need to, uh, you know, one guy has to say, okay, I'm going to do fire and you're going to do water, you know, let's duke it out. That was the format in which these. it makes sense that they would have had those clashing ideas. Uh, It's not that they, you know, genuinely, the person was per se absolutely convinced to the Corvus being that all was fire. It was more a, uh, you know, a premise on on which he was prepared to... uh, uh, to use as a basis for showing his uh, acumen in philosophical debate, in, in, so that's uh, one of the strengths of pre-Socratic natural philosophy. This kind of diversity of perspectives, the opposition of ideas, is very distinctive. You know, uh, for you know, I used to think that this was all crazy. You know, how could anybody in the right mind genuinely believe? themselves to have discovered or proved that all is water or all is fire, like uh, these people said, you know. What were they smoking, am I right? And that stuff was just a couple of generations before peak Greek philosophy. Uh, There's many refined insights in mathematics and science comes just right on the heels of these kinds of crazy people who think all is fire, which sounds like the the most uh, absurd, uh, you know, on par with... uh, Superstition and uh, uh, pe- peculiarly anti-scientific worldviews. So, how can those things be reconciled? You know, how can they have been crackpots uh, for at that time and then gone from zero to a hundred in the blink of an eye and become an excellent scientists? You know, it does make sense. It makes sense if you consider the stage debate uh, setting. All is fire. It is a perfect starting point for this kind of stage debate uh, performance. It's like a dangerous stunt, you know, jumping across a ravine with a motorcycle or juggling uh, three uh, burning torches or three uh, running chainsaws, you know, stuff like this. You do daredevil things to show off. You to go on the stage and say, all is fire, okay, come at me, you know, try to prove me wrong, I will answer all your counter arguments. I will uh, give a compelling philosophical justification that all is fire, the crazier and more implausible the initial thesis is, like all being fire, the more impressive it is then if you do manage. to, so in fact, parry objections, defend your thesis, come up with clever ways of saying, well, actually all is fire. You know, if you, if you can pull that off, then, you know, you're going to be, uh, that's exactly what the stage debate audience wants to see. People doing daredevil intellectual stuff like that. So, nobody ever actually believed that all is fire, but they admired the guts of somebody who was prepared to argue as if they did believe that all was fire, for example, or water, whatever. They glorified the ability to argue unconventional ideas well. That's the culture at large glorifies this ability. And that's why they are drawn to these kinds of stage debates, that uh, gives them a joy uh, to watch somebody being able to pull off a feat like that, defending the thesis that all is uh, fire. This turned out to be a great move for stimulating philosophy, of course, to putting a premium on that. To put, so giving so much uh, weight or status to the ability of being able to defend an, an idea from uh, potential refutations, from potential intellectual uh, opponents, you know that is indeed a, a good starting point for stimulating the development of uh, philosophy and science. So the stage debate setting, it also explains why these kinds of crazy theses were always defended by abstract deductive reasoning, not by empirical investigation. So if you want to prove that all is fire or something, you're going to give sort of plausible sounding abstract uh, principles for that or in fact if you want to prove that motion doesn't exist, you can give a these uh, abstract uh, reasoning about that, as we know that Sino in his Paradoxes of Motion, for example, is a, somebody who, uh, who did that kind of thing. And uh, the stage debate context explains why they would focus on those kinds of arguments. Because you have a, an interested but inexpert audience. People don't come to these stage debates having done a bunch of homework and knowing technical facts, you know, so therefore, to present to them technical detail or even carefully uh, marshaled data, it may be quite inappropriate and ineffective. It, in any case, it would be less effective than a striking, well-chosen, plausible, or would-be demonstrative argument, like Sino's uh, paradoxes. This kind of stuff. It really. Uh, when you hear it, you go, huh, well, that's yeah, it's, it's got a point, doesn't it? You know, like that, rather than like, well, I, I measured a bunch of things and I got this table of numbers over here that I, you know, th- that's not going to really uh, capture the hearts and minds of the audience of a stage debate, uh, is it? So you would have more of these kinds of theoretical arguments. This is why we understand that how the recent argument comes to be uh, the method of philosophical inquiry in in Greece. So the notion of the supremacy of pure reason may be said to have promoted uh, some of the triumphs of Greek science. It is uh, a characteristic uh, that, uh, respect in which the Greek culture is distinctive and indeed with much success. However, these triumphs of reason so they were sometimes bought at the price of a certain impoverishment of the empirical Uh, side of inquiry. In early Greek science, observations are cited to illustrate and support particular doctrines, almost uh, one might say, as one of the dialectical devices available to the uh, advocates of the thesis in question. So that's a sort of uh, rhetorical move almost, more than a foundation of the uh, theory itself. And also observations and tests they could be used to d- employed uh, destructively to disprove the opponent. Uh, Aristotle for example uh, does this quite a bit with great effect and so those kinds of uses of observation they fit well uh, within a stage debate format you know and if you say well uh, everybody knows uh, there's some common experience so therefore that shows so and so if you to, to draw that kind of... Uh, Uh, almost rhetorical uh, way of incorporating observation or experience in your reasoning, that makes sense. However, it it would not make sense to go further into the kind of empirical uses of of data that we expect from a modern science. Uh, Too much emphasis on, well, I can't really explain why, but it just follows from a bunch of measurements that I made. You know, that's not going to uh, be uh, interesting to that kind of audience and it's not going to be compelling in that type of debate. And indeed, uh, theories uh, would not be put at risk by being checked against further observations carried out open-endedly without prejudices for the outcome, you know, like experimental science, test your hypothesis, try to falsify it. Well, that wouldn't really be in the interest of these kinds of stage debate uh, philosophical performers to do that kind of thing. So, indeed, the speaker's role was to advocate his own cause, to present his own thesis in a favorable light as possible. It was not his responsibility to scrutinize the weaknesses of his own case or with that keenness which was he probed those of his opponent. So that gives uh, Greek science a very distinctive characteristic, which is perhaps uh, somewhat ambiguous in the case of science. You might say that it's uh, limiting in some respects, although it was also fruitful, in other respects, nevertheless, ultimately for mathematics, it will turn out to be a good move indeed. I mean, this emphasis on pure reason, on questioning, on uh, challenging assumptions and not caring about concrete measurements, gathering of data, that is indeed a very good recipe for uh, producing or stimulating uh, the development of pure mathematics. So there's... uh, this stage debate setting, you might say, one of the obvious dangers of that will be the danger of rhetoric, of convincing speech that somebody could sound, be a good speaker, a good orator, and be able to make the worst argument appear the better, as his uh, famous phrase goes Uh, that indeed was used often in Greek times. The Greeks were very much aware of that potential danger, of course. In fact, they were so much uh, highly aware of this that even early on in the Greek tradition, it became commonplace for everybody to insist on their own lack of skill in speaking. You would say, oh, I'm not a speaker. I'm just, you know, uh, explaining my reasoning. I'm not trying to convince anybody. I don't know the tricks for making something sound extra compelling, you know. Uh, so the Greeks uh, kept kept saying those kinds of things because they were so acutely aware of this potential danger in their mode of reasoning that that was more uh, inclined to allow uh, rhetorical uh, force to uh, overtake reason sometimes. Nevertheless, the Greeks decided that indeed uh, this shouldn't this is not a reason to abandon the stage debate format, not at all. On the contrary, we need to ensure that this, this debate setting, this kind of dialectical one person versus the other type of debate, that has to be defended. So they were very keen, therefore, on explicating the correct rules of procedure for conducting a dialectical inquiry to ensure the intellectual integrity of these kinds of debates. So the Greeks decided to go down that route instead of saying, you know, let's forget about this kind of public speaking thing because it can be populistic. And so they decided, no, no, this mode, this idea about one person arguing with the other. Before an audience, it's so important that we have to protect it. We have to keep it because it's going to be essential to, you know, the very essence of a philosophical inquiry, the very, you know, nature of intellectual progress resides in this. They found it so important that they decided to put all their eggs in that basket and uh, protect it at all costs. And this is, uh, we ha- have them to thank for this because it helped us, it, it gave us unique things. So what I just described is basically a summary of Geoffrey Lloyd's book, Magic Reason and Experience. It's the name of the book that is a book, uh, his book on the origin of Greek scientific thought, in the pre-Socratic period. Uh, that's a great book. Go read it, by all means. And also very illuminating is uh, Lloyd's uh, later book, where he contrasts the Greek contrarian climate of thought with its opposite paradigm, reverential, conservative thought, or you might say reconciliatory uh, thought as well, is typified by the ancient Chinese tradition. He uses China as a contrast case, a parallel comparative history of these two cultures that uh, can be used to bring out the distinctiveness of the Greek case. So the title of that book is Adversaries and Authorities, which precisely mirrors this, uh, this division between the the Greek adversaries and the Chinese authorities. So let me uh, summarize the arguments of that book. It's going to help us uh, uh, understand the nature of the Greek uh, intellectual climate. So uh, as uh, Lloyd observes, uh, any acquaintance with early Greek natural philosophy immediately brings to light a very large number of instances of philosophers, criticizing other thinkers. Being a philosopher means being subjected to blistering attack. That could pretty much be considered the definition of philosophy in Greek antiquity. From the list of occasions when philosophers are attacked by name, one could pretty much reconstruct the main lines of development of Hellenistic philosophy altogether. In fact, it's not only limited to philosophy either, The hard-hitting polemic is uh, the name of the game in mathematics, in medicine, in art. The the Greeks, they just love this stuff uh, to absolutely go at their their opponents, their forefathers with everything they got to prove them wrong. There is a lack of great authority figures. Even Homer, the great uh, poet, is uh, attacked more often than revered in these sources. And uh, indeed, this Greek style of philosophy is connected to the social context. Not only politically, as we have said, but also the educational context. The uh, Greek pupils could and did pick and choose between teachers. Direct criticisms of teachers is possible and, in fact, quite common. Argument and debate are one of the means of attracting and holding students... And furthermore, they serve to mark the boundaries between different uh, schools of thought, so you can set yourself apart this way. The Greek schools were there not just or not even primarily to hand on a body of learned texts, but rather to attract pupils, to win arguments with their rivals. It's a very antagonistic uh, climate. They may even be said to have needed their rivals in order to better define their own positions by, by contrast with theirs. Dialectical debate on which the reputations of philosophers and scientists alike so often depended, uh, stimulated, in fact, one might almost say dictated confrontation. It's in the very nature of the intellectual enterprise to always have enemies, to so always argue against others. The recurrent confrontation between rival masters of truth left little room for the development of a consensus, let alone an orthodoxy. And little... Uh, Sense, likewise, was felt for uh, the need or desirability of a common intellectual program. On the contrary, what was admired was uh, distinctiveness, uniqueness, the ability to destroy other schools of thought. So it was this rivalry between competing claimants to intellectual leadership and prestige in Greece that stimulated the analysis of proving and of proof in mathematics, among other fields. Many... Have assumed that the internal dynamic of the development of mathematics itself would somehow, just inevitably, eventually lead to the demand for strict axiomatic deductive demonstration, and so that there would then be no need to postulate an external explanation for why mathematics arose in Greece. It's just that's just uh, where mathematics is going to take you once you start reasoning about triangles and stuff, and you know, boom, boom, it soon you have axiomatic deductive reasoning. That's a logic and so You know, you might be tempted to think that. However, the difficulty for that view is that other non-Greek Asian mathematical traditions, the Babylonian, the Egyptian, the Hindu, Chinese, they all got along perfectly well without any notion corresponding to axioms and the particular notion of strict demonstration that went with it. Indeed, the underlying cause is perhaps best captured by this dichotomy between the adversarial Greeks and the Iranic authority bound Chinese, according to Lloyd. So, the different philosophical styles of ancient Greece and China reflect differences in the political systems. Extensive political and legal debates in the assemblies, in the councils, law courts were a prominent feature of life of Greek citizens. Democracy primes people for debate, for listening to and for assessing different points of view. And, and conflicting claims. You have to learn to listen to that side and the other side and weigh the evidence for yourself. That happens in the parliament, in the courts, and you know, in the, the, that is a un, uh, central feature of democracy itself, inherent in democracy itself. Meanwhile, in China, things were very different indeed. Greek, uh, many people in Greece, they seem to have positively delighted in litigation, They developed a taste for confrontational argument in that context, and they became experts in evaluating those kinds of arguments. Chinese, by contrast, they avoided any brush with the law as far as they could. Disputes that could not be resolved by arbitration were felt to be a breakdown of due order, and as such, reflect unfavorably on both parties, whoever was in the right. So the Greeks love to fight, they think, see it as fundamentally productive, whereas the Chinese see it as inherently destructive. It is a failure of a character to have to resort to, to debate and confrontation like that. Uh, so in the political world, and you might imagine then reflect, having that reflected also in the intellectual world, if in the world of of law, of economics you're not supposed to resort to the courts then so also in philosophy you're not supposed to resort to uh, pointing out the errors of your enemy, to going after them and saying you're wrong about this, you're wrong about that but rather you should try to find amicable uh, resolutions to problems in both of these uh, spheres. That would be the Chinese attitude and along with this goes also the uh, kind of envisioned audience of uh, of uh, the arguments that one presents in in politics as well as in the world of uh, of ideas in greek context the typical target audience that you would, that a greek rhetorician would have imagined would have been a group of fellow citizens peers basically so because indeed that would be the case in the intellectual domains if you present your scientific ideas but likewise of course that's just a that mirrors the political situation because in the greek law courts for instance the decisions rested with peers who were chosen by lot they combined the roles of judge and jury so very kind of egalitarian type of uh, structure there in china quite different there the intended audience for philosophical and scientific work was very different. The ruler, the emperor, the Chinese were never in any doubt that wise and benevolent rule of a monarch is the ideal. That's what you should strive for. So in politics, so in the world of ideas. So in philosophy also, you would not uh, have this kind of uh, egalitarian peer versus versus peer type of uh, mode as the default, but rather you would have uh, the idea of the all-wise person at the top, and that would be the, the thing that you would strive to have, a science that would conform with that kind of uh, social picture. In Greece, you don't have that kind of stuff. On the contrary, the Greek philosophers often adopt a stance of fierce independence with respect to rulers. But, however, with that independence came a disadvantage. Compared with their Chinese counterparts, the Greek philosophers and scientists, they had appreciably less chance of having their ideas put into practice. Autocrats, like as in China, could and did move swiftly from theoretical approval to practical implementation. Not so in Greece. Greek philosophers, they had little hope of any real power. Perhaps, indeed, that is why they like to pretend that they didn't actually want any power anyway the superiority of theory to practice. It's a theme that's repeatedly taken up by scientists as well as philosophers in Greece. Perhaps that was uh, more to make a virtue out of necessity than for true conviction. They knew that they wouldn't have any power anyway, so they tried to pretend, oh, you know, actually power is bad anyway, and we are much more noble for not having any. Unlike in classical Greece, in China, the bid to consolidate a comprehensive, unified worldview, was basically successful. The prime duty of the members of a Chinese uh, school of thought was the preparation, the preservation and transmission of a received body of text, an established canon of wisdom. In that context, pupils did not criticize teachers, and any given school did not see it as a primary task to take on a defeat Uh, other schools, other uh, neighboring philosophers in an argument. So very different from the Greek context. The the Greeks adopted a stance of aggressive egotism in debate. On the other hand, the the tactics of Chinese advisors to the courts or intellectuals was to build on common ground, and certainly also on tradition, was to present Uh, their arguments as sanctioned by tradition this was a uh, a mode of reasoning that was seen as compelling unlike of course in the greek case where on the contrary you would uh, try to put yourself set yourself apart precisely by criticizing everybody who had gone before in the chinese case instead the emphasis is not on points at which earlier philosophers disagreed but rather on which each of them had positively to to contribute, how each had succeeded, at least in part, to grasping the the Tao, the true or right way that unifies all uh, schools of thought, the, the grain of wisdom in all of them. So there you have it then. This is the source of Greek exceptionalism in intellectual history. It comes down to this, to glorifying extreme adversarialism to waking up in the morning and going, today I'm going to point out errors in other people's arguments. The Greeks lived for that stuff. And it was this that made them mathematicians, eventually. That was not a a planned child, as it were. Geography cornered them into democracy. And that in turn led, stimulated this combative uh, philosophical climate... And when some kind of fragments of mathematics from Egypt and the Orient were dropped into this petri dish, as it were, the reaction was explosive. These two things were made for each other. Mathematics and argumentative debate was a match made in heaven. The Greek philosophical context triggered an avalanche of mathematical progress. As soon as they got wind of the very idea the first steps in mathematics from other cultures they immediately just sparked a a fire in the greek mind that loved this kind of confrontation of philosophy so much that those two things went together it this transformed geometry very quickly from a set of sort of obscure calculation rules into mankind's best exemplar of perfect knowledge, which is what mathematics was to become in the hands of the Greeks. And this is exactly the story that we're going to follow uh, in this uh, season two of this podcast, Opinionated History of Mathematics. Thank you.